You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Bob. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Well, good. Let me introduce you. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You're Catherine Wilson, a philosopher. You're currently visiting professor of philosophy at the City University of New York Graduate Center. Is that fair to say? That's right. You're something of an authority on the uh, ancient Greek philosophy of Epicureanism. Um, you have written uh, scholarly tomes with such titles as Epicureanism at the Origins of Modernity, uh, which was published by Oxford University Press. But you have a new book out that's aimed uh, at a popular audience called How to Be an Epicurean, uh, The Ancient Art of Living Well, published by Basic Books. Now, um, there is, as you know, a book called How to Be a Stoic. In fact, the author, who is... Uh, uh, a colleague of yours, Acuni, uh, a philosopher, Massimo Piliucci, has, has been on the show. Um, and I, I gather, um, and, and as you say in the book, Stoicism has is undergoing some, something of a resurgence of interest. People are adopting it as an actual guide to living. And you're, to some extent, presenting Epicureanism in contrast to it, and you're uh, something of of, uh, of an advocate. I guess. Um, would you, is it too much to call you a practicing Epicurean? <laughs> well, I suppose so. I mean, I suppose the first thing to say is uh, I am not a classical studies scholar. So I'm not an ancient philosophy specialist by any means. I got into this by, um, by being a 17th century specialist and looking at how Epicurus and Lucretius, his follower, got back into the picture. So, um, and it was um, through that so purely intellectual interest in 17th century atomism and materialism that I kind of drifted into um, thinking more about the relevance of Epicureanism today. So, I'm not a card carrying anything. Um, well, maybe I'm a pacifist. Hard-carrying pacifist. But, and, um, and we should say, no plot spoilers, but we'll get into this, I think. Epicureanism has a certain kind of anti-militarist bent. Absolutely. Uh, I, I take yeah. it, and we'll, and, we'll, and we'll get to that. But but yeah. go ahead. But um, uh, but uh, I've been trying to persuade Massimo that um, Epicureanism has a lot going for it, and that Stoicism is is not the only way to go. I understand that that people are really interested these days in looking back at ancient philosophies uh, for their own lives, and uh, and I see why they want to do that. Yeah. So let's. Um I definitely want to compare it with Stoicism along a number of dimensions, and there's a place in the book where you do a kind of a handy point-by-point uh, point comparison, and we'll touch on some of those. Why don't we start out by talking about the role of pleasure in Epicureanism? Because I think, you know, one of the connotations of the term Epicurean today is of kind of hedonism, self-indulgence, and I think on the one hand, you're going to say that that's in a way misleading. On the other hand, pleasure does play a central role in, in, in the logic of Epicureanism, right? And, 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 and a, as a value, uh, that in some sense you can organize your life around. Maybe that's putting it a little too strongly, but, but it's an important concept, right? So do you want to talk about that? Uh, yeah. Um, so um, hedonism is uh, is pleasure taken to extremes, and no Epicurean ever recommended that because they saw um, that there are two limitations on that. First, uh, you usually get yourself into trouble if you go too much into the pleasures of food, drink, sex, power, domination, um, but also there are ethical limits. So um, there's no no way to go all out and stay within the limits of Epicureanism. On the other hand, what they do is give you a permission to enjoy innocent pleasures, and they don't they don't see an opposition between pleasure and virtue, which all the major moral philosophies and religions seem to do. There's a kind of core of asceticism in uh, not only Western, but uh, Eastern thinking, and Epicureans were completely opposed to it. 
Yeah. Um, so, uh, I mean, could you almost broaden that to say that uh, feelings generally are viewed with more suspicion by Stoics than by Epicureans. Uh, uh, you know, of course, Stoics um, aim to be able to preserve their equanimity and even happiness under even highly adverse conditions. Um, I think Epicureans are a little less optimistic about that. But but do, but does that um, and and that. You know, that involves, I guess, in the case of Stoics, that entails, um, you know, an ability to, um, to some extent, divorce yourself from the guidance of natural emotions, right? I I mean, is there a broader distinction between Stoicism and Epicureanism and just the way we think about kind of our animal nature? Oh, I think so. Absolutely. Um, The Stoics, of course, wanted to insist and and on and, and magnify the difference between animals and humans. And Epicureans will do that to some extent because humans have particular talents. They invented culture and they have reason. But they think of the emotions as like perception, something that we're outfitted with um, that is conducive to our survival and functioning. So in the first place, they think you can't support just suppress your emotions by thinking in certain ways. And secondly, why would you want to? Um, No, if you could just take a pill that would make you completely numb against grief, against all forms of irritation, um, as well as against um, wanting things, liking things, being motivated to pursue things, um, life would seem incredibly numb and boring. So, uh, well, Stoics will tell you that they they only want to free you of the painful emotions. Really, their rhetoric suggests otherwise. Seneca thinks any little bit of emotion is bad. The emotions are diseases. Okay. Um, Now, so just to maybe... um reflect on something you see you you alluded to earlier like like, um the limits that we should impose on ourselves according to epicureans as we pursue pleasure um one as you as you put in the book i mean there's uh in addition to yourself at that moment as something that you legitimately think about it's fair for me to want to be happy and enjoy pleasure at the moment and there are basically two kinds of constraints on that one is uh, trade-offs between my happiness and the happiness of my future self, and you know, thinking about that is 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 what we call prudence. And then the other kind of trade-off to think about is between my own happiness and the happiness of other people, and that's when we enter the realm of ethics and and morality, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, I guess, I mean, a. a couple of things i'm wondering uh are there very um clear i'm a little fuzzy on i guess the ethical guidelines i'd take away from epicureanism in the sense that um i'm not sure exactly you know when i should respect the trade-off between my happiness and another person's and when i shouldn't um uh, you know i mean another well, first of all, let's let's talk a little. I, I I take it that did Epicurean actually did Epicureanism actually influence the emergence of utilitarianism um, in in uh, kind of modern philosophy and kind of the nineteenth century or whenever the roots are, or or does it just so happen that they both? Oh, absolutely, yes. Uh, Bentham uh, Bentham was an Epicurean uh, mill who follows Bentham and modifies him a bit, also refers to to Epicurus. So um, Bentham is a particularly hard-line Epicurean utilitarian, and I Uh don't think the original Epicureans ever thought in terms of of measurements of utility or making social decisions based on utility. They were really just thinking of interactions between people who knew each other well. So their first influence is really on in on the kind of um, 
theories of theories of morality you see in the 18th century where people's reactions to each other of approval and disapproval and esteem are what's kind of shaping and controlling people into um, having reasonable social behavior okay i mean the reason i uh one reason i bring up utilitarianism is According to utilitarianism, you know, no one person, as it's commonly taken, no one person's happiness is more important than another person's happiness. And so uh, if you if you take that as a guideline for kind of setting up a moral system from uh, from the outside, um, then I guess, you know, you'd want a certain amount of of of, of kind of equality. But uh, but if you. If you take it as a, a guideline for your personal moral conduct, I mean, sometimes utilitarianism is uh, is is seen as a really extreme prescriptive philosophy because the idea is if I really take seriously the idea that everyone else's happiness is is more is as important as mine, then whenever. I'm enjoying something at the expense of any increment of enjoyment of another person, then I should change that, right? So, so in theory, I should be spending all my time giving away food to people who have less. And I should, right? I mean, utilitarianism is sometimes, uh, taken that way. And it seems to follow, uh, from, from, you know, just the, the two assertions that happiness is good and that no one person's happiness is better than any others. If you take that seriously as personal moral guidance, you have to become kind of a saint to comply with it. But that's, that is, uh, I mean, first of all, tell me if you think that's wrong in the way I'm characterizing utilitarianism, but that's certainly not the idea behind Epicureanism, right? No, that's right. And uh, I, I wrote quite a bit about the, the problem you're discussing in my much earlier book called Moral Animals, Ideals and Constraints in Moral Theory. And there the idea was that um, you have to take into account the, the heavy costs of certain kinds of moral action. Your aim is always to I call it uh, reduce your advantage against someone else um, by by lying or keeping all your money and giving none of it away. You know, you uh, enhance your your uh, your selfish goals can be furthered, um, but you don't do that all the time, and you do that some of the time. In some cases, you do behave selfishly, or. Um, yeah, don't do all the good that that you could do. So there are you're always weighing these things, as you suggest. You can't be an absolute consequentialist. But I think the Epicureans just thought of this of they thought of of morality as or justice, as they call it, as what they say is it's a convention to prevent one person from harming another, and that's a really good basic definition. I think it's better than any other definition of ethics. Uh, that you can find anywhere. But that doesn't imply that you have to go along with Peter Singer and give away all your possessions and salary to the point where you're as badly off as the worst person. Yeah. I I know Peter a little. He's never given me any money, actually. So, <laughs> some, no. But but seriously, actually, he 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 comes. You know, he he comes closer to walking the walk than uh, than a lot of people. He 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 takes that very seriously. But but you're right. He is a utilitarian, uh, and uh, and and his his version of it uh, is is pretty demanding. And of course, he carries into the realm of animal welfare now. I, that's a that's a, a kind of a just a tangential question. Um, Epicureans, I gather, uh, think that uh, you know the, the, the moral considerations arise from the fact that we are capable of pleasure and pain, right? That there are beings, other beings, are capable of pleasure and pain. Um, do they include animals in that calculation? Because I think they thought some uh, other animals are are capable of. Pleasure and pain, right? Um, absolutely. Um, yeah, there's uh, Lucretius writes quite a bit about animal behavior, um, and he uh, he even writes about the cow who's mourning for her lost calf, and you could take that as an invitation to uh, not eat veal or maybe to be a complete vegetarian. But they never said anything of the sort. 
really. And I think like all ancient philosophers and most philosophers until recently, though not all of them, um, they, they were thinking of humans in a speciesist and, and privileged way. Mm-hmm. So you could extend this uh, pleasure and pain thing, but they, they didn't. Okay. And just to close out this this question about kind of the, the the nature of the moral guidance you get from Epicureanism, I guess the key distinction is between actively harming someone and failing to help them. I mean, I'm sure that 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 if you know they would say if you see someone who's about to die, you do something. But but uh, the, the, the they there isn't the same. Uh, there isn't this the same mandate to go out looking for people to help that say a, a utilitarian might uh, might articulate and and I gather it's more about thinking of yourself as just not having the right to to harm people via things you do is that well um, that's part of it but I think an epicurean um, is also very worried about pain. Right, the pain that's imposed on people for no good reason. So uh, I would think a, a latter-day Epicurean would be very critical, for example, of our prison system and um, the way in which people are living in slums and ghettos and, and tenements these days. Um, and uh, to the extent that those situations are coming about, um, because someone is benefiting from it. Someone is getting an advantage mm-hmm. from mistreatment of others. Epicurean would say that's unethical. Mm-hmm. Of course, some of those are a product of uh, government policy more than the the actions of any one individual. In other words, there's nothing I can do about conditions in the prison very readily, but it is, except as a citizen advocating policy. Um, maybe we could talk just briefly about uh, Epicurean... Well, no, let's back up. Let's make this a placeholder. I want to talk about Epicurean attitudes toward the political authority itself, their their view of things like patriotism and and so on. But I, I, I want to uh, – let's now back up to a really foundational level. The, you spend a certain amount of the early part of the book um, talking about the Epicurean conception of just kind of how nature works. And um, – uh, and and you do a little contrasting of that with the Stoic version of how nature works, and and that's um, this is something that I've often seen emphasized in uh, in discussions of Lucretius's. As you said, he's this Roman poet who kind of popularizes um, Epicurus, especially in this this well known long poem called uh, "What Is It on the Nature of Things?" On the nature of things. On the nature of things. Um, the, this gets us back to your original uh, interest in Epicureanism because um, it, it's a worldview. It's a view of the world that, in some ways, resonates with a modern scientific worldview. And I think you see it as as relevant to a lot of the other the other aspects, the moral aspects, and the kind of self helpy aspects, and so on. So, you want to talk about that a little? How they how they saw the world working? Uh, sure. Um, they they were atomists. Um, they believe that all which that is to really say atomists. atomists. They believed in atoms. Okay. In atoms, yeah, which were uh, tiny material particles. Although sometimes they were gets a bit complicated. Uh, sometimes these were actually seeds. They speak with them as seeds. Um, and uh, atoms and the void existed. We would never be able to see the atoms. They thought, and they came together kind of randomly, but uh, some stable configurations stuck together. And some of these stable configurations actually were living things that, as it turned out, could reproduce themselves. And that's how we got all the plants and animals and humans in the world. That's one account. The, The other account is that there were just seeds of these animals, plants, humans, living things, just kind of in the earth, but they just developed and, and came to the surface by, by nature. So no creationism, no intelligent design, nothing like that. Uh, everything comes from matter in the way they're thinking about matter. And um, I think uh, Lucretius even, and maybe Epicurus, we don't know because we've lost 
so many of his texts. But Lucretius has a kind of natural selection theory. The, uh, the animals that uh, you know had too many parts that didn't work together so well, they died out, and the ones that were functional survived. Yeah, people have uh, noted that Charles Darwin's grandfather, Erasmus, who wrote his own long poems, uh, has uh, writes some things that sound kind of like natural selection. And you make the point, I guess, that Erasmus was himself conscious of Lucretius and was a uh, read Lucretius. Yes, that's right. And and I'm sure Darwin himself. So it drives me crazy when I go to a museum. I think even the Natural History Museum did this. And you get the impression from reading their little, little um, blurbs that everybody in the Victorian period and before was a creationist. Nobody had an inkling that anything else was possible until Darwin came along mm-hmm. and you know, set everybody straight. And uh, this is simply untrue. This Lucretian theory, this uh, Epicurean theory, was in the background for a very long time, even, even in the 17th and 18th century. People were talking about it and saying, hmm, well, that really is a leap. That really is speculative. But they were thinking about it and discussing it and, and even putting it forward in a cautious way. Okay, so it's a pretty materialistic theory that Adam... What Adam means in that context is indivisible particles, the fundamental particles that can't be cut up any finer. I mean, we now know that what we first called atoms actually can be cut up, but, but in any event, it's in that sense scientific. There's one, there's one thing that may not sound so modern to some people, which is that to account for the ability of some animals, including humans, to have a sub- subjective experience of pleasure and pain and, and so on, um, they, posited these things that you call or they called soul atoms it's a special category of atom that we have and like my desk doesn't have and a rock doesn't have that's right yeah and these these soul atoms are just distributed through your whole body i, I should say s-o-u-l not s-o-l-e right right <laughs> okay. we're gonna make that be quiet and we're gonna turn off that telephone Good. Um, yes, that's right. So the, the soul atoms pervade the whole body, and they just make you able to feel and smell and hear and, and see okay. and move and that, be alive. But that said, it was materialist in the sense, I guess, that we're still talking about atoms. And, and, and in any event, uh, their takeaway was that there's no afterlife. Once you die, that's kind of it for any kind of coherent soul. Um, it was fundamentally, well, maybe atheistic is too strong a word, but, uh, I mean, you tell me. He didn't, uh, they didn't dismiss the idea of gods in any sense, but they kind of moved them to the periphery of their thinking. Is that? Yeah, I think um, Lucretius is actually a bit different from Epicurus because um, Epicurus was really trying to convey some sense of piety and love of the gods. So he puts them off in another cosmos where they don't interfere and don't even know that we're doing all these things in our world. They're off in their own world um, where they're immortal. It's a little hard to see how they can be immortal because they're just atomic as well. Um, But he's not exactly hostile to religion. Maybe in some of the texts that we don't know about, he was. But Lucretius is really fierce. Uh, Lucretius starts out uh, talking about the sacrifice of Iphigenia as what religion makes you do. I mean, you could look at some Old Testament examples for that as well. And he thinks um, uh, priests uh, have manipulated people and frightened them with stories of hell and that it's all about social control, and there's really nothing positive uh, that Lucretius has to say about religion that I can find. Okay. So um, I guess another place that uh, – another implication maybe of, of a fundamentally materialist view, or at least uh, an implication of, 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 of the Epicurean view of nature – has to do with the way they think about authority, both moral authority and political authority. Is that is that is is that a fair connection to make? I mean, um, they uh, 
Well, you tell me. I, I, they may, they may not be moral relativists in the sense that some people are today, but they're closer to that than a lot of Greeks, right? Including Stoics. Is that fair? Uh, yes. Yeah. That they think that morality is a convention that's agreed on in your society and that it changes as circumstances change. Right. So they're not seeing morality as coming from the gods. Uh, no, no morality that you should particularly respect. They're, they're seeing it as a, as a, a human convention. Yeah, as a, a social instrument for, for avoiding harm. Okay. Yeah. Not, just, not just for cooperation. Many people today talk about cooperation as being the basis of ethics. Um, but they see it in, in this, uh, I think, more sensitive way as uh, avoiding advantage-taking, avoiding exploitation. Okay. And, and then, similarly, they're, they're more skeptical of uh, of how much reverence we should treat political authority with, right? Well, I think they're they're quite. Um, I don't want to say ambivalent about political authority. They they think two things about political authority. One, um, you need it. Um, uh, if you don't have uh, a centralized authority, you essentially have competitive people vying for supremacy and and uh, you no know, self-aggrandizement. Um, so you need a central authority to keep people in line. Something Hobbes took mm-hmm. away from the Epicureans, I think. On the other hand, uh, they see this potential for abuse um, because um, they, they do have a kind of story of civilization where uh, the, the clever ones kind of uh, persuade the not-so-clever ones or the um, right more, uh, more open-hearted and less suspicious ones to work for them. And in this way, you get uh, essentially conditions of labor slavery, which all ancient societies had, and which you might think we still have today in, in various forms. Okay. So with both moral and political authority, they don't buy the idea that it derives from a divine source, uh, as has so often been believed then and since. Um but even um, – I guess you would probably also distinguish them from philosophers who, on the one hand, uh, didn't did, wouldn't say moral or political authority had a divine source, but might – well, maybe here's a way of asking the question. Were they not moral realists? I mean, I take moral realism to mean that you believe that there is such a thing as moral truth in some sense out there. That, that, that there's some absolute there. Um, the Epicureans were not moral realists. Is that – yeah, not not in uh, uh, today's metaphysical terms, because remember they're only atoms, void, and and what people think. So morality is a is a set of beliefs existing in people's heads, mm-hmm. and those beliefs don't correspond to something outside their heads, mm-hmm. because the only thing outside their heads are atoms and void. Okay, and things um, made of atoms and void. So it is in some ways, um, I mean, there's no one modern worldview, but it is in many ways a modern worldview. I mean, it taps into a lot of currents of of modern thought. I mean, right. It, uh, right. Broadly yeah, speaking. Including, including anti-realism or some form of constructivism in uh-huh. in um, So I, I had said that you, you have a kind of uh, compare and contrast with uh, Stoicism, between Epicureanism and Stoicism. So let's, why don't we run down that um, in roughly the order you give it in the book, I think. Um, and, and and your list starts at the foundational level uh, of kind of thinking about the way the world works. Um, so Epicureans have atoms as the fundamental units. And then what about Stoics? They have... Um, what is it, they pneuma have, or? Uh, they have, yeah, they have this uh, pneuma that is an all-pervading substance that has some kind of spiritual qualities or organizing power or something like that. You know, if I were a real ancient scholar, I would, I'm sure, have, have more to say about that. But it's it's a rational principle. It's a maybe a morphological principle, a developmental principle. Um, it's what they thought you needed because just bits of matter no, were not going to be enough to construct a world. Mm-hmm. And is the is the implication that, you know, it, I mean, there's a difference 
between the two schools in the way they think of nature as providing or not providing moral guidance kind of in a direct way, right? I mean, I mean, the, the, uh, the Stoics attributed more, um, more, I mean, they thought nature embodied, uh, they, they combined is and ought, I guess you'd say. They thought that nature itself embodied in a certain sense, uh, moral laws or moral guidance. Is that right? Well, I think they, they, like Plato, tend to see in the regularities of the heavens a model for how okay. people should, should be. Right. Very predictable and steady and imperturbable is how they Okay. See. So somewhere out there in nature was embedded a kind of moral guideline. Although nature, as it impinges on organisms on a day-to-day basis, on us, was actually in some ways something to be resisted to the Stoics. I mean, I, I mean, our natural emotions were 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 viewed with tremendous uh, skepticism and suspicion. Yeah, that's right. So they, um, Marcus Aurelius talks about the, the human soul as an, an inner citadel that is impregnable. Whereas the Epicurean sees you as just part of the world, stimuli coming in, your actions going out, you're feeling this way or that way about what is happening. The Stoics sort of want to say you can be the center of calm and order. Mm -hmm. Um, The fray of the world is out there, but it doesn't have to disturb you. And you can make changes in your own head such that it doesn't disturb you. And the Epicureans were both skeptical of how realistic an aspiration that was and not so sure they'd want to get there anyway? (laughs) Uh, Exactly, yeah. They thought uh, this uh, prescription against grieving for dead friends or relatives was, um, you know, just uh, barbaric. Um, How how could you ban grief as a legitimate emotion? Okay, so the, the, the emotions, the feelings, both positive and negative, they give shape to our lives deserve respect, even though there is this central uh, kind of respect for pleasure in Epicureanism, there's a certain kind of respect f- for the negative emotions as well? Well, I think so. Um, I mean, I, I can't, uh, uh, I don't think I can cite any passages that would support that, but I think um, Descartes, who I think took up this Epicurean anti-Stoic view and in his writings, he says somewhere that all the emotions are good. You know, even um, even grief can uh, bring you a kind of joy in the end, um, and uh, none of them should be none of them should be shunned. None of them should be disparaged. They're all part of human experience. And I think um, when you're really having a bad time with someone or something, you do just think, oh no. I want to get rid of this. This is just really unpleasant. Why am I so obsessed about this thing? But I've found that that just working on your own head is not very effective, whereas changing your circumstances, changing the inputs, mm-hmm. um, that's what really works. And then you're able to change your way of thinking and develop a more objective and distanced attitude. But... Uh, I think along with the Epicureans that uh, you can't do it just by retreating to your inner citadel. Okay. And by the way, were um, you referred to, to Descartes' uh, version of Epicureanism as being anti-Stoic. Were Stoicism and Epicureanism thought of as rivals back in the day? I mean, uh, there there were after more, more uh, after all more than two schools of Greek philosophical thought, but but were they thought of as particularly kind of playing uh, in the same ballpark? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, maybe the, the source for that is Cicero, because in many of Cicero's dialogues, um, the one on the nature of the gods, Tusculan disputations, uh, maybe some of the others as well, he really sets them against each other. He has a spokesperson for the Epicurean view, and spokesperson for the Stoic view, and uh, they get to present their best case and uh, kind of question each other. Yeah. Okay. So another um, another comparison you make is that Stoicism is a is a virtue philosophy. They posit for I don't know what is it courage, wisdom, temperance, and something else. Um, they're, they're, what is it? 
Wisdom. Wisdom. Oh, I didn't mention wisdom? Courage, wisdom. Uh, courage temperance, um, wisdom, and oh, what's the other one? It'll, should... it'll come to you. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good thing your book isn't called How to Be a Stoic. Sure. Then is. it would be embarrassing <laughs> that you don't know all four stoic virtues. But, uh, uh, but, but there, but, Justice, but, I would think. What's that? Justice. Oh, okay. Um, that's right. Uh, whereas now, and Epicureans, as you said, Epicurus emphasized justice, uh, and they emphasize, they emphasize temperance as a practice to make sure you, that you don't cheat the future self by indulging the present self, but, um, but, but it's still not a virtue philosophy per se, right? What, so what does that mean exactly? That if you, in a certain sense, abide by certain virtues, but but you're still not a virtue philosophy? Uh, yeah. I mean, um, I think the, the points about what an Epicurean might say about courage is that, um, and Kant would say this as well, uh, it can be misused. You can do courageous things like walking into a bank and holding up the bank teller that takes a lot of courage um, but it's not a good thing to do so why are we idolizing courage as such as opposed to actions that are helpful rather than, than harmful mm-hmm. well and and you actually another dimension you do the comparison along his attitudes toward war and and i guess one th- that's another example right war i i don't know whether um Stoics valorize war, but but it is a place where uh, you can you can display your courage. Yes. Um, and uh, and Epicureans are more skeptical of well the virtue of war. You might say is that yeah. And uh, I, I don't know if Epicurus had anything in particular to say about war. It would be very interesting if he did. Um, but they they see war as um, connected with civilization. And as one of the problems with civilization, mm-hmm. where other ancient philosophers, they either take war completely for granted, oh, it's just part of life. You go and, and conquer and you um, defend yourself against being conquered because obviously people want your stuff and you want their stuff. And that's just sort of unchallenged by most of the ancient philosophers in Plato, Aristotle, the Stoics. So military valor is really prized in ancient societies. Um, it's thought to be a very, very good quality to have. And um, the Epicureans think, um, well, if you want to be happy, don't join the army. <laughs> and like, and you know, don't get into ships and start going off and uh, marauding and looking for treasure. Um, right, find your happiness and peace and contentment at mm-hmm. home. So, Okay, and as you said, Epicurus has a particular conception of kind of the natural state of human beings as contrasted with the situation in which civilizations find themselves. And and I guess he sees war as a product of of the civilizations fundamentally. I mean, as a manifestation of like greed and ambition, as you say, but um, but but as in some sense not a natural thing. Yeah, I think that that comes through in Lucretius. Um, okay, and, and so we, we, we would guess that Epicurus. So yes. was his, his work, was uh, it was destroyed in like a famous volcano, a lot of it, or? Um, yeah, that's right. There was a very good collection of Epicurean writings in Herculaneum, and uh, it got covered in lava and dust and is now being dug up and um, reconstructed, but still very hard to read. But Epicurus wrote many, many books, and he probably had something to say about war as well as kingship and love and all sorts of topics. Okay. Um, but the other reason we don't have so much is that um, unlike Plato, Aristotle, and the Stoics, who were quite easy to reconcile with Christianity – if you took the right bits, it was very hard to make a Christianity Epicureanism fusion. So there wasn't the same care about preserving manuscripts and translating. Hmm. Them. Hmm. Uh, That's interesting. Yeah, many. So, and we're just lucky that a few copies of Lucretius survived because 
And why was it? I mean, of course, it it wasn't theistic. There's that, but was there was there more than that about it uh, uh, that made it less compatible with Christianity than some other oh, schools? The uh, the mortality of the soul. Um, yeah, yeah, that's not. Yeah, yeah. that's a problem. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm starting to see why. Yeah, uh, it wasn't. It wasn't. Go wouldn't be the. Wouldn't be the first text they saved if the lo- if the hot lava started flowing in their direction. Maybe <laughs> that's right. Um, okay, so you also talk about, and we've, we've kind of touched on this, moral authority. Stoics see natural law as the source of uh, moral authority in some sense. Uh, to the Epicureans, morality is a, is a convention of agreement among human beings. Uh, yeah, there's, there's no such thing as natural law. Uh, except that atoms tend to fall in a certain way, except when they don't, when they when they swerve. But law as such is just a, a, a human convention, a human agreement. So it's kind of a, a misnomer to speak of laws of nature, because there just aren't any. And no no natural rights either. Um, that's now, now, I, now, did they, they believe there were no not laws of physical nature or just there were no de- moral laws derivable from the nature of physical stuff? Uh, I think no, no laws of physical nature in, in the sense in which 17th century people, uh, Galileo and some opticians before that. So um, their regularities and tendencies, habits of nature, like the fact that sheep give birth to more sheep. Uh-huh. That's a natural regularity, um, but laws of nature and uh, the uh, anything like the quantitative sense or the you know, some uh, some scientific sense they, they just don't have those. But nobody nobody else does really in the 17th century, except um, in this in this idea that um, what providence has so arranged the world, the Stoics would say that. You have these rights that are grounded in nature somehow, and you have these obligations that are grounded in nature. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess if they thought there were no laws per se of, of the physical world, maybe that answers a question I had, which is that you, you say that Stoicism is deterministic um, and uh, and and. Epicureanism less so. Epicureanism uh, emphasizes more the the role of chance, and in one sense it makes sense because the Stoics they so emphasize dealing with the hand you've been dealt. Right, like whatever your fate is, there's a way to preserve equanimity amid it, and amid it, and and that makes sense if they view the world as deterministic and 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 your fate at any given moment as having been. Inevitable, but I didn't really understand why the Epicureans with an atomistic worldview would would not be deterministic. But it's just this is built into their. They were just. I mean, maybe you know they're they're like closer to quantum physics, I guess. But they they just uh, just the, just the way they thought of the world. Quirky. Yeah, yeah. The the atoms are just knocking around. Uh, they have a general tendency to fall downward, whatever that means. Um, but they're also kind of being being pushed upward, and they don't fall in straight lines because sometimes they just swerve, which Epicurus thinks uh, is somehow the basis of free will, though he never explains how that actually works. But they do stress choice and avoidance; those are their their big terms. So they really they do believe in free will. They do believe in, in human power. So I guess that comes from the soul atoms, presumably. I don't know if they said that, but. Um, yeah, something, something like that. No. Okay. The, the um, so universalism versus relativism is another dimension on the on the stoicism versus uh, and I guess we've seen the relativism part that being associated with Epicureanism and but but universalism uh, in it means what in that context? And you're associating it with stoicism in what sense there? Um, I think the Stoics envision something like um. The extension of especially Roman civil society to the whole world, right, with everybody uh. under one political system, under one moral system, they think you know, that's the way things are heading and should head. Okay. Uh, um, how convenient. The, yeah. the, uh, then, then, uh, as you say, uh, yeah, another, another point you make, 
just a more a more negative view of emotions among the Stoics and the Epicure than among the the Epicureans. We've we've talked about that. Uh, Stoics thought family life was almost an intrinsic moral good, whereas the uh, the Epicureans could take it or leave it. Uh, well. Um, there, Epicurus and Lucretius seem to divide again, as, the, as they did in religion. Okay. So, the, in the Epicurean Garden, um, it was kind of a free for all uh, because they had women, uh, they had philosophical women. Um, these women are called courtesans in ancient literature, but that just means they're not married and they're not prostitutes. They're just uh, what we would call today sexually liberated women who are free to have affairs and arrangements with men. And Epicurus thought uh, that was the ideal situation. He thought marriage and children would just bring you trouble and vexation. So, But if a philosopher wanted to get married, that was okay. That wasn't uh, prohibited or anything like that. Lucretius seems to have a more favorable view of marriage. Uh, he thinks that um, if you don't have children, you know, you're really missing something. That's uh, really a shame. And maybe you should get a different spouse if you're not having children with this one, uh, mm-hmm. because it's all just uh, just biology and physics. And uh, you haven't been cursed by the gods. You just need a different material arrangement. Okay. Um, another difference you say is that uh, Stoics thought that suicide was sometimes the option to choose Epicureans, not so much? Well, I think the Epicureans were especially dubious about all the political reasons for suicide mm. that you find in, in, in the Stoics. Um, of course, Seneca is an example of political suicide, you know, driven into the corner by, by Nero. Um, but you shouldn't I, get... I'm actually into, not familiar with that story. So it was the honorable way to go because... Uh, he was probably going to be assassinated anyway. Uh-huh. So the Epicurean view is if you get mixed up in politics, you're asking for trouble. You know, you're going to be dealing with um, tyrants and monomaniacs and assassinations and executions and enemies and persecution. No, save yourself the trouble. They always get criticized for being apolitical, but that was what they, they really thought. It's only ambition that would make people willing to get into that sort of situation. And then to kill yourself because things are going badly for you because of the tyrant. Um, well, you know, it's really too bad that you got into that situation, but it's sort of ridiculous. I think they, they would be more sympathetic with, with, Physician-assisted suicide, somebody whose uh, health is just so awful that they don't want to live anymore. Um, there's no hope for them. But Epicurus, even there, tries to kind of cheer people up and say, um, even blindness is tolerable. People can compensate. Okay. Um, and then... Uh Finally, maybe, uh, I mean, this isn't quite the end of the list, but the, um, uh, of your list of comparisons, but uh, as I understand it, you're saying the Stoics saw suffering as inevitable. The Epicureans saw it as minimizable. Um, if that, if I said that word right, in any event, that might surprise some people because I was thinking the Stoics, um, I mean, you know, Buddhists, uh, and, and, you know, I actually did a conversation with Massimo on comparisons between Buddhism and Stoicism and, and differences, but, you know, Buddhists say that, uh, suffering is the thing that's not in, you know, th- their view is in some ways like the Stoics. It's like you can deal with the situation, uh, especially if you don't take your emotions too seriously in a certain sense or view, or view them with a, a certain kind of critical distance. Um, and the way it's generally put in the Buddhist context is, okay, pain, physical pain may be inevitable, but suffering is not. Suffering is is more interpretive. It's like choosing to let the pain be a problem is what leads you to suffer from the pain in a, in a certain sense. And I would have th- thought that Stoics might put it the same way. But you're, you're saying that the Stoics uh, see suffering itself as in some sense unavoidable? Yeah, no, no. I think I should have really put that differently because, um, yeah, they, they think that, that suffering can be 
repressed, suppressed, um, is mentally controllable. It's trouble that you can't avoid for the Stoics. Okay. Um, so if you're in political life, as we were just saying, you're going to run into trouble. Um, if you're in family life, you're going to run into trouble. So um, it's trouble that you can't avoid, but you can't avoid suffering. That's right. I think I, I misstated that. Where the Epicureans would say, um, you can do a lot of things to avoid trouble in the first place um, or to get out of it quickly by your actions, not by rearranging your head um, in case you do run into it. Okay. Um, and uh, and we've kind of alluded to, I guess, what you say about uh, a certain skepticism on the part of Epicureans about Patriotism, nationalism, I don't know if we, we were very explicit about it. It kind of follows from what we did say, I guess, ha- having to do with their their view of political authority. Um, there were, you know, there were places in the book where I almost got a sense that they would have been fans of international law, but I guess maybe that wasn't like a term that was actually in use then. I don't know, but... Uh, yeah. It, well, if you think of international law as the centralization of an authority to prevent people from harming each other. Um, yes, they would have been in favor of things like the UN, if it were more effective than it is, and it maybe had a different conception of itself than it is. Um, but um, let's see, what, what were we, what's the focus here? I think well, I got patriotism. That. Patriotism, yeah. So they would say, um, look, what's a country? A country is just a bunch of atoms that uh, people in their minds have decided to call their country. Um, they have drawn arbitrary boundaries and lines and said, these are the borders of our state. Why would you have emotional attachment to such a, such a thing, um, particularly if it involves um, aggression against other people? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of warming up to them. <laughs> um, the, so, uh, so is there anything else you, what you, you think, is there something, anything big you think we've, we've missed? Uh, uh, let's see. Did we talk about death? We can talk only about in death. the sense that there's no afterlife, but, but I, there's probably more to say. Uh, in this, according to the Epicureans, there's no afterlife. I mean, yeah. w- was there, according to the Stoics, an afterlife? I guess I'm not clear on that for that matter. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not either. So what what else would you say about death? Well, I would say that that um, the Epicurean view is that everything has limits. Everything is going to fall apart because it's just made of atoms and it's going to crumble away. And uh, these people who want to prolong human life oh, for 280 years or who are willing to inject themselves with the plasma of this and that and take 150 supplements. Um, uh, this is a very unepicurean way of looking at human life where you think, well, there's a life cycle. There are future generations. They're going to take over. Um, and the, the fact that we uh, oh, prolong life in a futile way and, and, um, don't come to terms with our own mortality um, is a really serious problem. I've been hearing from a lot of people with uh, you know, uh, elderly relatives who are just in despair about the way in which old people are treated at mm-hmm. um, end of life. So uh, that's, that's uh, something that's, that we can get from them, this um, rational attitude towards death and preparation for it. Okay. And then in terms of the kind of the legacy of Epicureanism in modern thought, I, I, I gather that there were at least two points of contact with the development of modern thought. One is what initially drew uh, you into Epicureanism, 17th century. And that's just uh, the, the, that I gather that the shaping of the modern Western scientific worldview did draw to some extent on actual Epicureanism. Is that... Uh, or at least was referenced. Uh, yeah, absolutely. The uh, the atoms, sometimes called corpuscles, come back in a big way with Galileo, Descartes, Newton. They're all atomistic um, philosophers. They don't necessarily believe in in indivisible atoms, but they believe that tiny particles are are where it's at. And they add to that the idea of laws of nature. Uh huh. 
which as we were saying, you don't find in, in ancient philosophy. And that's really the basis of, of modern science. And then the other point of contact, as we mentioned, was utilitarianism, uh, I guess mainly in the 19th century. The, 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 the modern philosophy that puts human pleasure or at least happiness at its uh, at its center as as an organizing principle, and that again was uh, explicitly drawing on on uh, Epicureanism. It yes, like. that, that and the idea of morality as a human agreement, which uh-huh. was also really important. And uh, as a convention, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, which is important. And, and I guess we should add that in reference to the the scientific. Influence. Um, there, there is the point of contact with evolutionism again in the in the kind of in the nineteenth century. Um, right. So right. that's not just kind of seventeenth century physics. Um, okay, so you've written what you've written now several books on Epicureanism, and I don't want to give people the idea that the whole book is about Epicureanism versus Stoicism. It's not, but um, but you do near the end. Um, uh, do do a do a do a series of explicit comparisons, and Stoicism's gotten so much publicity. And I mean, I, I gather when you titled the book, you were you were aware of Massimo's book, right? Was this <laughs> so? Uh, so uh, you can certainly get that out of that, but but um, but it's not it's not mainly um a comparison of the two. It, it's a, it's an accessible exposition of. Um, of Epicureanism. So you've written what sev- three books on Epicureanism, or uh, yeah, and um, I mean other books and articles have dealt with atomism in a more specialized way, seventeenth uh-huh. century atomism, and life sciences of the seventeenth uh, and eighteenth century. I've worked on that as well, microscopy. So are you going to you going to stick with Epicureanism, or are you going to shift gears after you get finished <laughs> talking about the book? Well, I'm trying to write a book on Kant. Mm. Uh, that shows Kant against the materialists of the 18th century and uh, against many of the progressive tendencies, socially progressive tendencies amongst the materialists. So it's it's a continuation of what I've been doing all these years. Now, how much of that uh, will be like a novel interpretation? I, I had thought of Kant as the kind of guy who wouldn't like materialists, but I really don't know much about him. I mean, is that that much can be assumed or... Yes, you know, it's, um, it's kind of a new angle uh, on it because Kant mentions materialism, fatalism, and atheism as uh, the things that he needs to stop, that all his critiques will stop. But um, very few people have, have looked into this or written about it because Kant practically never mentions materialism again using that word. Mm-hmm. But I think you can reconstruct a great deal of what he has to say in terms of this Stoic Epicurean dialectic and his worries about uh, the sciences of the 18th century and the threat to human freedom that he sees huh. in the sciences. So you said so the, the three things he was against were, were materialism, atheism, what was the third? Fatalism. Fatalism. Now that's interesting because the fatalism I'd associate with the Stoics, the materialism maybe more with the, maybe more with the Epicureans, um, yeah. and the atheism maybe more with the Epicureans. Do you find it easy to understand what Kant is talking about <laughs> in general? <laughs> I, I, I find, I mean, you're always, I'm always re- you're reading him in translation. That's a problem. But, you know, you compare him to Hume. I mean, Hume is just, to me, much more straightforward. Yeah. Um, so Kant is a very, uh, I mean, there's a real contrast between his lighter popular writings and essays, things he wrote for magazines, which oh, you really? can easily understand. <laughs> Um, and the, the three critiques, which are very repetitious and diffuse. Um, but it really helps to have an interpretive key. And then if you go in, as I'm going in with this hypothesis about what he's really worried about, things sort of fall into place. And that's how I'm trying to teach my students this term. So by interpretive key, you mean an organizing principle, a working hypothesis that Allows you to look for certain things and and ignore others. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, that is always valuable. I mean, it's funny. I have um, more or less have attention deficit disorder. I have a very hard time paying attention. But I've noticed, like, if I'm 
preparing if I want if I'm going to make an argument, like if I know what my thesis is going to be at least tentatively, it's easy to focus on the writing because I guess because confirmation bias is motivating you. You know, you're just you're just looking for that gratifying, affirming evidence, and it keeps you going. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> so there you go. Well, congratulations on the book. It's been out just a couple of months now. Uh, yeah, since the end of September, I think. Okay. And, uh, you know, I hope you vanquish your rival Massimo. <laughs> well, I think uh, um, the dialectic has been going on for a couple of centuries now, so I don't expect it to be over anytime soon. You don't, you don't think you're going to settle it once and for all? <laughs> I don't think so. I okay. Like it, but- he may have other ideas. You never know. Okay. Well, thanks. Thanks a lot, Catherine. Okay. Thank you.